What's up, everyone? Welcome to Through the Veil, episode number 30. We finally made it to 30. I cannot believe it. So today's episode is a super, super special one. I've got Eric Godsey, the wizard himself, on the podcast. He's been on once before with our mutual friend Hallie Rose, but this is the first one where we've gotten to really dive deep, just the two of us. And it was a powerful one go figure so i hope you enjoy this episode if you do please consider sharing it out on social media you know give it to a friend who you think could use some of this info and as always a five star rating on itunes or a written review on itunes helps grow the podcast dramatically so that's super super appreciated if you feel called to do that you can find me on instagram at alexander diesel and you can find my website at www.throughtheveil.co And on there is all of my coaching offerings, some articles I've written, as well as just links to all the podcast episodes. So check that out if it calls to you. But without any further ado, let's jump into this powerful, powerful episode. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here. Brother, thank you for having me on again. Yeah, man. I'm happy to have you here. We we just got out of, you know, like a weekend ago being together in celebration, which was fucking beautiful and wonderful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the idea had surfaced slightly before that, that I need to have you on solo on my podcast. So I'm happy to have you here. Um, if you can give the audience just like a little introduction, just who you are, and perhaps in, you know, a few paragraphs, or really take as long as you want, just kind of how you've gotten to where you are today. <laughs> Small questions only to start. Yeah, so, yeah, so um, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. It actually comes up pretty often in my psychedelic experiences where uh, the question is like, what am I? Like I did a ketamine journey solo, like with ceremonial intent a couple of weeks ago. And that was the big major thing is like, what am I? And trying Mm -hmm. to feel into like, what is the energy behind me that animates me that has a distinct signature that isn't, you know, just the universe that moves through all of us because we each seem to have a specific energetic signature that people might call the soul or whatever. But I was just trying to feel into that. But Uh, My ego, you know, the story that he has is I'm a coach, a podcaster, a writer. Um, I'm really into cognitive psychology. That's what I I have a bachelor's of science in cognitive psychology. Um, I'm really, really interested in evolutionary psychology. Um, I think it's one of the pieces most missing from the current spiritual zeitgeist is Mm -hmm. really understanding what instincts and programs and archetypes we are born into the world with because we have a body that's evolved on this planet. Mm. And then my other really favorite area of study is Jungian psychology. I think he got so much stuff right and we are still trying to digest the things that he offered over a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm a coach for fit for service. Uh, It's truly the greatest honor of my professional life so far. It's absolutely uh, helped me become the man that I am today and to be of service to people that um, are like you is truly 
you know, it, every single summit that I'm at, I have some moment where I walk away from everything and I just look at the sky and then I look at whatever is happening and I just start crying and mm -hmm. I feel into like, I get to do this as my job. And I realize that this is one of the luckiest positions that a human feels that they can be in. And the gratitude is so immense that the only thing that I can do is to tell the God that is watching me, like I give my life in service because I am so unarticulably grateful for the fact that I'm 29 and I have found this groove in the river and I'm going to ride it into the motherfucking sunset. Absolutely. I'm sure you get this feeling as well. I have a very similar feeling that washes over me every ceremony that I facilitate where I'm just sitting and I'm looking at the people in the room and they're all in their deep process and working through whatever they're working through. And I just start to cry a little bit because it's like this, it's not only this feeling of deep gratitude, but all this, also this feeling of like deep respect for being around these people who are doing the work and showing up. And it's like, I know you've talked about like getting to see the time tunnel. This is like those moments are me getting to see the time tunnel and seeing how far those ripples are traveling. And it's from that moment. And so it's just this feeling of like vastness and right. weight and not in a bad way, just like, no. oh, this is where it happens. And this feeling of the beauty that is before me is greater than I can ever comprehend. Mm. And then the only proper response is awe and tears. Mm -hmm. And to try to answer the story of like, what's brought me here, it's been, yeah. it's, it's been really interesting. Um, so I've done enough work to know that the root came from, um, I had a beautiful relationship with my mother where she loved me unconditionally, but she also had um, severe depressive episodes and as a child, I was always curious. Um, and in hindsight, I could see wounded when those episodes would happen. And I would feel the complete with like withdrawal of her love. And um, it got me very interested in psychology very early. Mm. And I, and I'm like, I think about like, how did I become who I am coming from where I came from? where there was no culture. Like I grew up in a small town of like 8,000 people in Wisconsin and the culture was Walmart and television. Yeah. But, be but because I read books, like that was the thing that helped like liberate me. But I was really into reading myths as a kid. Like I was really into mythology. My parents had a little library and in hindsight, I have so much gratitude that they fed my curiosity. Like I remember coming home from school, telling them that I started reading Greek mythology and they didn't stop me from reading Greek mythology. And, you know, there's like rape and murder and all crazy types of stuff going on there. And my dad actually encouraged me. He was like, you know, I actually like Norse myths more. Here are some books on Norse mythology. And I started reading the myths of both of those traditions, like in like third and fourth and fifth grade. And I got really into the, Arthur myths, like the King Arthur myths. Um, I really, what really resonated with me was um, the story of the Green Knight and the Green Chapel. And we can get into mm -hmm. that at some point later. Mm -hmm. But um, that sowed a seed that was forgotten once puberty started. And puberty came for me pretty early. I was always larger than everybody else. And so, um, uh, 
once puberty came, it was just basketball and girls for like five or six or seven years. I didn't pick up a fucking book. Mm -hmm. um, and then I tore my rotator cuff when I was a junior in high school. And I was good enough at basketball where I could have been like a role player at a D1 college, just shooting threes and running mm -hmm. up and down the court. And that was the only thing that I was focused on until I tore my rotator cuff. And the day I tore my rotator cuff, I came home and my mom was taking an online class uh, in philosophy. And I'd never really gotten into philosophy. And she told me the story of Plato's cave that, that night, like as my arm is in a sling and a new seed was sown. Mm -hmm. And for like four or five years, I desperately railed against giving up the dream of being a fucking role player at some uh, international league where I would mm -hmm. make like $28,000 a year and probably right. get someone here pregnant and not take mm -hmm. care of the child. And, mm -hmm. and the universe had to smash my, like I dislocated both my shoulders probably uh, combined 30 times. Jesus. Yeah. Until I finally <laughs> realized like, dude. And um, <clears throat> when I got to college, school was really easy for me my entire life. So I didn't know how to study. And I was the first one in my uh, family to go to an actual college. I was actually the first one in my family to graduate high school. Like everyone else got GEDs afterwards because, you know, shit happened. And so I didn't have any mentors to guide me in college. And I failed all of my classes my first year because the moment it got hard, I just stopped going to school because I had my own place. I had no uh, parental supervision. And I remember at the end of my first year of college, um, I was listening to a Joe Rogan stand-up and I didn't know who Joe Rogan was. I didn't know what a podcast was. I hadn't heard of a podcast yet. And I just watched this stand-up special on Netflix and I just started smoking weed that year and I was really high. And Joe Rogan made a joke where he was like, we think we're smart, but we're fucking idiots. Like if all the smart people died, we're screwed. We, we would die. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do when the electricity goes out? Mm -hmm. Do what I do. You fucking sit and you wait. And if it doesn't come back on in a minute, you go, these fucking idiots can't mm -hmm. fix the electricity. But you don't know how to make electricity. <laughs> you don't know how this microphone works or these lights work or how to make a fucking cell phone. And I was just in my room high and I, I had my first like existential crisis where for mm -hmm. the first time in my life, I genuinely emotionally connected to the fact that I don't know how to do anything. Like what I did all through school is I argued with the teachers and that made me feel like I was smarter than them because I would argue and disrupt whatever it is that they were trying to teach. But I didn't know how to do anything practical. And I just had this moment where it's like, I'm throwing away my future because I don't know how to work hard. Mm. And I had this dramatic shift in my personality where like the very next day, I started reading all of my textbooks. I started listening to lectures on God and science and philosophy every day. I shed all my friendships from that time because I didn't even know how to interact with them. And I got deep into philosophy. I started reading philosophy every fucking day. Uh, I wrote some really terrible philosophy um, where I thought that I was going to be the next Wittgenstein and I was going to write this major philosophical work as a 19 year old that would revolutionize the way that we understand the world. And I fully committed to school and I ended up graduating with like a 3.7. 
my GPA at the end of the first year was 0. 0.07 or 0. 0.7. I should have been expelled, but I was on a mm. the GI scholarship because my mom had gone to war. Mm. And so I think they just were taking my money, but it worked out. And for the next two or three years, I got into psychedelics. I started getting into podcasts. I heard my first podcast and I was with Aubrey Marcus and Joe Rogan. It was the first time Aubrey was ever on Joe where right before that, his name was Chris. He went and he did this thing called ayahuasca and he fucking got ate by snakes and saw a starship that like beamed light into his body. And for the first time in my life, like it's hard to articulate, but for the first time in my life, I saw that there were people other than the people I grew up with in my 8,000 person town. And I saw that you were allowed to be some other type of man mm -hmm. than the type of men that I saw in this town. And it got me deeply curious. Um, <clears throat> I really got into psychedelics. I had this moment in college where every weekend for about 10 weeks, I either did mushrooms or LSD or DMT. And in hindsight, what I realized is I put myself through like a personal initiation ritual that completely transformed the way that I because before that I was an atheist or mm. I claimed to be an atheist, but I still prayed every day. And that's something right. that I don't, um, you know, the deep hypocrisy of being an atheist, but every motherfucking night I prayed. Um, and I didn't know what I was praying to. In hindsight, I was trying to find someone who had an argument that could help me believe in God. Mm. And then I eventually found Carl Jung. This was also in college. And he was the first person to give me like a rational bridge to understanding spirituality um, when I graduated, I got a job at Chipotle because I didn't understand how the world worked. And I thought if I got my degree in psychology, I would go be a psychologist. Right. I was fucking <laughs> wrong. And when I was working at Chipotle, I had this insight, like I am not built to live this type of life. I have to make my own life. So then I got the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. I read it three times. I realized that I needed to start a website. I needed to become an expert in something. So I bought all the best books that have been written in the last 50 years on habit change studied those, became a habit change coach, um, eventually got a job at a call center where I <clears throat> maneuvered my way where I didn't, where I got to be, I got to work from home. I was mm. a chat room monitor, but really mm. what that meant was for seven of the eight hours, I didn't do anything but work on my business and didn't yeah. actually do anything. And I eventually got caught for doing that. The day I got fired was the day that Aubrey launched his first iteration of the go for your win course. I'd never bought an online course before. I thought they were bullshit. I was like, I'm going to teach myself everything. I'm not going to pay some motherfucker to tell me how to live my life. Mm -hmm. But I bought it. I was super active in the in the community. Um, it eventually led me to being hired at Onnit. When I was at, at Onnit, I started just answering customer service emails for Aubrey's like website. Um, after a couple of months of interpreting everyone's dreams, except for Aubrey, because he didn't talk to me, but everyone else on the team, uh, it slowly spread to him that there was this dude at this cubicle who has some fucking sauce and you should talk to him. And uh, he eventually came over and like talked to me. He started to read the emails that I was sending people. And he was like, dude, he asked me to be on his podcast. Mm. Um, it, the couple of podcasts that I did with him ended up being some of the most downloaded podcasts that he had, that he had done up until that moment. And then he started fit for service shortly after that. He told me I had to be a coach. He didn't ask me to be a coach. And then having to show up as a coach for fit for service radically transformed me from a boy who didn't think that he was a man who pretended to be a man who didn't feel that he was worthy to now I genuinely feel like I am a man who has a boy inside of him. I am worthy. I take care of that boy. 
and I can feel the trajectory of my life is incredible. It's, it's incomprehensible, but now I have my own company. I work with Aubrey as a consultant. I'm helping him write his book and I have a book deal basically waiting for me after this book is done. Mm. I have my podcast that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I really feel in alignment with my motherfucking Dharma. Fuck yeah. That shit lights me up. (laughs) That is one of the reasons I like to start the podcast with like the person's story of how they've gotten to this moment right here is because I think so many people, they would look at what you're doing right now. They'd be like, wow, lucky Eric. Like, you know, if I just looked at like the on paper, I'd be like, well, yeah, you went to school, got a psychology degree, and then you started working for Aubrey. Like, must be nice. (laughs) You hear the whole story and you're like, oh, shit. And when you realize that that timeframe in which this has evolved is so quick, I think it gives this like North Star for people of like, okay, I could aim at that shit. That can happen for me too. So I want to talk a little bit about evolutionary psychology, I think. Of all the things you talked about, this is one thing that I think you and I both key in on because there there are biological truths in addition to everything else that we talk about and especially in the spiritual community oftentimes we can get like a little over here and it's like the way i conceptualize it is you've you've got these hooks in you of all different types but some of the hooks are your need to reproduce your need for food your need for safety like basic maslow's hierarchy shit and when we don't acknowledge those, we get into this sort of like spiritual bypassing. So yes. explain a little bit, maybe as a starting point, just what evolutionary psychology means to you and then relation to spirituality and how yeah. you interplay those. Yeah. So the way that I see it is we are consciousness inside of a meat suit and consciousness has the ability. And we've seen people who show it where you can override almost every evolutionary program inside of you but that's like 20th degree black belt level shit Mm -hmm. and if you don't understand the evolutionary programs that have been put into you by the spirit that animates all organic life i think it causes a lot of suffering for people who start on the spiritual path and so the kind of the like mythology of evolutionary psychology is that um, before there was sexual reproduction, there was asexual reproduction. And that's where a line of genetic code copies itself. And that was the first type of organic life that was happening on this planet. Eventually, viruses introduce themselves into environments. And the moment a virus introduces itself into an environment where there is asexual reproduction, if the virus has learned how to hack that genetic code, it wipes out all the living organisms in that environment that have that genetic code. And so the idea is that to combat viruses, there is a mutation that led to sexual reproduction. And once you have sexual reproduction, you then have it where you recombine two lines of genetic code to make a unique third and then there's this like evolutionary arms race between mutating viruses and sexual selection sexual selection eventually brought us to mammalian life and brought us to social mammalian life which is Mm -hmm. the descendant tree that we come from and 
when you look at where we evolved from on the evolutionary tree and you study how these animals operate in a natural environment, you begin to understand kind of the core programming that we come into the world with. And one of my fantasies is to map out every single evolutionary program that we have, but I've talked to some evolutionary psychologists and it's like hundreds, like it's over 500 that we are able to articulate. And so I gave that up. But the two core drives that we seem to have is self-preservation, which is the primary one, and then reproduction, Mm -hmm. which is as long as self-preservation is taken care enough, we then begin to run this program of reproduction. Um, That eventually, there now seems to be a third thing, which because self-preservation and the will to reproduce somehow led to language that the moment language came onto the scene it seems to be my intuition is there's a third primary drive and it's the it's like the will to transcend or to grow Mm -hmm. like to become more than what you are now and it's a infinite nuanced ever expanding deepening whenever i like put my hands into the sand of evolutionary psychology because it's so interesting. But like fundamentally, if you're a male, you've come into the world with, you know, some of these programs and like the first set of programs. And if you really start to deepen into your moment to moment awareness, you can feel these programs running. Mm -hmm. And so like when you walk into a room, you instantly are assessing the human bodies in the room. Can I kill them if I need to? can they kill me if they wanted to? And then once that program is like quelled, it's, is there something in here that I can fuck? Is there something in here that wants to fuck me? And that's always happening. And like the way that we talk, how we dress, how we move, we're always unconsciously giving off these signals of, am I safe? And I, and am I a potential mate? And like, that's like always happening. And like you, because you want to reproduce, you are going to seek status. You are going to seek power. You're going to seek competence. And like all of our social emotions, all of our emotions, like our core, we have some core emotions that like the ones that are linked to self-preservation are essentially emotions that make us go forward or, or retract. And then we have this other layer of more complex emotions, which are all about how to dance within a tribe, a social Mm -hmm. hierarchy in a way where we maximize our chance to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And like, once you start to feel into those core programs, it, it, it brings a lot of forgiveness and understanding to ourselves and to other people about why people act the way that they act. And it's super helpful in dating. Like it's absolutely revolutionarily helpful in dating. It's super helpful in relating to like bosses. It's really helpful to understand how to function inside of a tribe or a community or like a business. And if you have more specific questions about any of these things, I can go deeper, but um, essentially what it is for me is it's trying to learn the user manual of the operating system that I was born into. Mm -hmm. yeah it's so it's so interesting because 
the most random examples pop up in my head to like illustrate what you're talking about. So when we look at the repression or the denial of the sexual drive, you get something like a Catholic priest that molests. Like that's the dark shadow expression. That's what happens when people tell themselves the story that I'm so spiritual that I don't need sexuality whatsoever. It's no longer a part of my biology. And like you said, it's like a, it, that's a 20th level black belt move. So you don't just get to jump to that somehow because you've taken an oath. The other thing I think was really interesting that popped into my head as you were speaking was just, so Aleister Crowley used to have this sex magic ritual. And the idea of the sex magic ritual was that he would have multiple women basically sexually please him in every way that could possibly be thought of for hours and hours and hours on end. If he fell asleep, they would wake him up and continue this. And the idea was to achieve a state where he was so sexually exhausted that that program was completely turned off in his brain to where it was non-present whatsoever as a way to hack the biology to get to that state of being. Now, I don't think that's the way you have to go through it. And to be honest, like what comes up and I've, I've, I've studied Crowley a lot and that feels like you are seeking or you, you are claiming to yourself and maybe to the people around you For that sure. you are seeking liberation from 100%. that program. I don't think any of these programs ever go away. What you can learn is how to not be hooked by them in your behavior and that he used his silver tongue and his boiling sexuality to achieve orgies. Totally. And that's right. This is like also the case for sex at dawn in some yes. some places that people have criticized of like, it's also a really good book to write if you want to run a harem. Like, yeah, that's a great way to go about your life. But the, the concept itself is interesting of just yes. like humans have been trying to find different ways to achieve and work with the third thing you talked about which is the sense of growth the sense of expansion the sense of connected to spirit and the uncovering of pieces of the great mystery we all have this inherent drive to do that as well but it's needing increasingly deep understandings of the way our biology works i think to truly move towards that because if you don't have the acknowledgement of the sexuality if you don't have the acknowledgement of like you said you walk into a room it's like could i fuck that dude up hmm. like one of the th best things i ever did for myself was learn how to fight muay thai yes and just the way that that changed my life because it took one thing off the table i was like oh i'm way more confident now and it's not a brutality thing. It's just a, I'm at peace. 100%. Like, and the thing about learning any type of martial arts is it only takes a couple of months for you to be at a level of proficiency mm -hmm. where you could handle anyone who would try to fight you. Mm -hmm. Like most people who get adept at that have no need to prove that. Right. And it's not something that comes out. The people that, that if you aren't putting out the energy to fight, the people and because I was always so big, I would like I often would not go to parties because I would get female attention. And because I was so big, I would get the attention of the insecure men. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is growing up uh, in Wisconsin, like the way that we would fight was we would wrestle. And the intention was not ever to cause harm, but it was to prove who was the alpha. Mm -hmm. And I never lost. And then I moved to Texas and I got into my first fight because I had a huge motherfucking ego. And instead of wrestling, he put his hands up and he started punching me in the face. 
fuck? And I remember like the moment I threw my first punch, I felt in my body, I don't want to hurt you. Mm. And I got my ass kicked. And like one of my calls is to get deeper into either jujitsu or kickboxing mm. just to be at the point. Because, you know, I'm called to be in ceremonial spaces. And if I'm ever around someone who's big, who starts to lose their shit, can I contain them physically if I need to? Mm -hmm. And if you don't feel confident in your body, like what's so, like we so deeply misunderstand mental health. And if a man is depressed and anxious and the first, and one of the first things that you don't look at is, is this man embodied? Mm -hmm. But you try to give him antidepressants instead or anti-anxiety medications instead. And I want to offer the caveat that if you are so far gone that you're close to killing yourself, these antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds can be a very good temporary number mm -hmm. that then can lead you to actual practices that will change your physiology that then will allow you to cope with the realities of the world and then you get off of them. And this Momentary is a whole pause button. Exactly. Like pause. And this is a whole tangent that we could do two hours on that mm. we don't need to get into, but short term intelligent use of psychiatric medication with the intent to cultivate actual practices that will allow you to cope with reality is the only way of using them that I have found in my hundred hours of research that is actually ethical. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole side note. Yeah. Well, I think about just like, and Jordan Peterson talks about this in a slightly different context, but he talks about when you're saying no to something, what is backing up your no? So in the context of like a job, do you have other options? Because if you don't have other options, your no means nothing. If I say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then the boss says, I'll fire you. You go, oh, just, I was kidding. I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. My bad. It's the same thing with just how you exist in the world. And I think people create adaptive strategies to deal with the fact that they don't feel safe in their body. They don't feel safe in their environment. But oftentimes those adaptive strategies are maladaptive strategies. And they cause the physical safety, which is the super primary need, but the downstream effects are these depressive effects because the way they're interacting with the world is no longer expansive. It's all contraction. It's all, I'm going to shy away from every little thing because it'll reduce the chance for conflict. It'll reduce the chance that I won't be physically safe. So it's like, I can't over talk about how martial arts or just being feeling safe in your own physical body, knowing how to handle yourself in these types of situations causes this downstream effect where you can start to feel like, oh, I can actually speak my opinion because I don't need to worry about some random asshole gets mad at me for having an opinion and tries to knock me out because I know how to dodge a punch. <laughs> it's, it's like so massive and it's just like so, it's wild to me that it's just not talked about. <laughs> Yeah, I do think one of the most powerful things that anyone listening to this could do is to find any type of community where the community is centered around a physical practice. Mm. And it, 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 it could be yoga, but it could be jujitsu, kickboxing, judo, aikido, and that the double whammy of having a community alongside something that embodies you 
and then add the felt sense of progression, which feels like a core biological need. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I think it should be one of the first prescriptions given to anyone in the Western world who comes in with a mental illness. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. So then we jump to, you read Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek, which was a seminal book for me as well. So we'll timestamp this right here. And when I have Tim Ferriss on eventually, or you have Tim Ferriss on eventually, he'll go to this moment in this podcast and go, thank you, Tim. We appreciate you, motherfucker. Also for what you do with psychedelics. That's great too. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think the value I found from that book and kind of even what you were speaking about that you got from hearing Aubrey on Joe's podcast is like this breaking of a mold. Like I had spent so much of my life thinking there were only like a couple of ways to exist. And those are like grind until you die and support your family. And in Tim's book, I was like, oh, wow. There's this broadening of my perception of the way that I could exist in the world. And in doing that, I bring back in choice into my life. And like the immediate effect, I'm sure you experienced this too, was just like, oh, I'm back in love with what my life could be again. And yep. I'd love to hear a little bit about just how that moment in your life kind of like yeah. spilled forward and what you felt. Absolutely. So I had to read that book three times in a row and I've almost, I almost never reread books. And it was because the, it was such a foreign idea mm -hmm. that I could create my own business to serve the life that I want. Like, mm -hmm. I grew up, both my parents were in the military. So I didn't even know that entrepreneurship was a thing, let alone entrepreneurship where the goal wasn't to make money, but the goal was to free myself to have the life that I want. And I remember the first time I read it that I could feel something big here, but I didn't understand almost it. I, I couldn't even imagine what the fuck he was talking about. And so then I read it again and I still couldn't like, put my hands into it. And then I finally read it a third time and it clicked. And it was like, all I have to do is read the top five books in something that I'm passionate about. And I am an expert mm -hmm. and I don't need a piece of paper to justify what it is that I'm doing if I'm giving people results. Mm -hmm. And so I thought for a long time, like, like I really struggled in college with like, because of the emergence of AI and I was getting really deep into like the singularity and like what would even be useful or necessary in 10 years. And my conclusion was eventually like the human psyche will be the last thing that AI will replace if it ever can. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, what's the most useful thing that I can offer people when it comes to the psyche? And the download eventually was habit change. Like, which is essentially transformation, which is essentially what everyone is looking for with every activity that they are ever doing to change their life. And it comes down to, do your behaviors change? Mm -hmm. And so for the next two years, I read every motherfucking habit book that was written in English that had the word habit in it somewhere. And the amazing thing is that there was this self-reinforcing alchemy that was happening by studying habit mm -hmm. change to serve other people I was learning how to change my own habits. And so I learned how to eat for the first time in my life. I learned how to work out for the first time in my life. I learned how to meditate. That motherfucking changed the game. Mm -hmm. And I learned that my personality was malleable. 
and in conjunction with psychedelics, it just like, it slowly, I started to build this momentum where um, I very quickly like transcended all my friendships. And like, there's even a part of me now, like even as a coach alongside Aubrey, Kyle and Caitlin, there's a part of me that feels guilty because like I've solved a lot of shit that they still share vulnerably. And like, I don't have those things. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that's like, there's a fearful part of me that's like, am I blind to my own shit? And you know, on some level we all are, but I also, I know the work that I've put in. Like, because I studied habit change, I learned probably when I was like 22, how to create a morning ritual that fed my life. And, um, I really think that that's the core because the entire time I worked it on it, like I was at the office for 10 hours every motherfucking day, every weekend. But even before that, every day at on it, I would show up two to three hours before the workday started. And I would do my thing for two to three hours because I had learned from the habit change thing. Like the first couple of hours of your day are the most potent if you can harness it and have it exactly as you want. And so like prayer, meditate, sit down at my desk and just add one brick to whatever the thing is that I'm mm-hmm. building. And like that started with my website. And so when I was like 21, I started my website and all I did is I wrote my trip reports. Like I would do a psychedelic and I would just write it as clearly as I possibly could. No one fucking read what I was writing. My first website is called Godsey's Irony, and you can still find it. It's yeah. Godsey's Irony at or dot blogspot.com. Mine's bullheaded Bacchus. So <laughs> we're, we're brothers in this uh, bad naming. Yeah. And um, I wrote probably 100 articles that nobody read except for maybe like four people. And I'm sure they didn't know what the fuck they were reading. Um, but that practice of writing every day of feeling like I was building my thing, even though I was still working at Chipotle and then I was working at this insurance company. Mm. Um, It eventually led to me being able to be of service to the go for your win community to the point that got me the job at on it that eventually led to the podcast and Tim Ferriss's book, really what it did is it brought me to my Dharma, which the first step on that Dharma was learning habit change. Mm habit change is so massive and i think you know you have such a wealth of knowledge in that area and just as an example from my own life like one of the first things i had to do so from the ages of i've talked about this a ton so i'll give the short version but from the age of like 15 to the age of 21 22 i was a terrible alcoholic i was drinking five six seven nights a week to the point of blacking out and part of the reason I was doing that was because I just had constructed my life around the wrong priorities. I thought the only priorities were girls knowing where the good parties were and looking cool. Those are the three, those were the services I was trying to get. And especially for young men out there, you know, it could be really difficult if you find yourself in that trap because you're, your external is giving you actually positive feedback in that loop. Like if you're getting laid, all of your friends are telling you, you're fucking nailing it. Like you're killing it. And internally I knew like, I don't know. I'm not, no, I'm fucking not. I feel empty. So this is terrible. And also the thing to highlight there is there's something deeply 
wounding when the external feedback is you're doing so good mm -hmm. and internally you're like, I'm not. And it's deeply confusing. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, there's a disconnect between what the world is telling you and what your felt experience is. So what that caused in me for a while was more drinking because I, I had this sense of like, Oh, I can't trust my own emotions. Like what I'm feeling must be fucking wrong. So I guess I'll party more, but then eventually, you know, I lost a job, et cetera, et cetera. I came to mushrooms also through Tim Ferriss on a super early of his podcast. He just like throw away line goes like mushrooms helped my depression. I'm like, interesting. All right, let's give that a try. Did something I don't recommend to anyone, which is I took five grams alone in my room and went fucking deep and had this deeply connective experience and then was able to shift that habit to where I didn't drink for a whole year after a couple more wow. mushroom experiences there and just had this immediate sense of having my life back. Not, not because I had quit drinking, but because I had shown myself that I was capable of improving at something that I had previously not had in order. And it was the first head above water moment where I was like, Oh, I can change things that seemed fundamental and deeply entrenched in my personality. I can change those. Oh, well, this changes everything. Yep. It was such yeah. a, go ahead. Yeah. That first habit change moment for anyone, hmm. like it is a life-changing experience because for the first time in your life, you realize I can change. And one of the most important things in uh, what we find in psychology that helps people be resilient to the woes that come with being alive is what's called agency. And agency is essentially the, the felt sense that what I do can actually make change in the world. And it begins with you. And if you show yourself that you can actually change something that you didn't know was changeable, it opens up everything mm. fucking portal <laughs> opened at that moment in my life that led me into a totally different dimension and you know just as you shared about your story like i had all these moments after that where i was like working through my shit working through my shit working through my shit and now i've arrived at a place where i've this even from the most recent fit preserve summit like one of my big takeaways that i had it's like it's okay to be okay <laughs> It's okay to have my shit together right now. Like yeah. I've earned that shit. I've paid my blood price. And it really, in that workshop that uh, Christine and Stefanos were leading where they had a step to the line. And like one of them was, if you've ever been sexually assaulted, step to the line. And I stepped forward, but there's no longer any deep emotion attached. There's empathy for all my brothers and sisters that were perhaps admitting it for the first time, but I had this breakthrough moment of like, this is okay. I've done the work on this. And yeah. that arrival feeling, I think it's just like, it's nice to put it as a set point. It's not, of course, the work continues. Like there's deepening levels yeah. and new shit comes up, of course, but to set it as a set point, like realistically your journey and my journey, I mean, I would say my journey has been six and a half, seven years of awareness. <laughs> and here we are and shit's coming together and as it comes together ooh, here we go one of the one of the things that i've carried since i was a child was this tremendous 
sense of guilt. Um, as a kid, I could feel, for whatever reason, um, compared to everyone in my family, life felt easier for me, and I didn't understand why, and I felt guilty for it. And as my life got better and better, this sense of guilt would grow and grow. And I did ayahuasca for the first time last year, and one of the main messages of my experience, it was the main message of the third night, was ayahuasca came to me and said, it's okay that you just get it. And I just started crying and she kept saying it and I would cry harder and harder. And there's, I, I don't know why I just get it to a degree that um, can create guilt. But like I said earlier, um, what alchemizes the guilt is that I know in my core of my heart that I am here of service for the rest of my life. And that as my life gets better, it's just more that I can give. And 100%. Um, yeah, it's, it's okay to be okay. Hmm. And if you could see the whole timeline of your life and you knew that maybe when you're 80, you, solved world hunger and you cured AIDS and you cured cancer and like all these beautiful things, how little would you question yourself right now? Would you be like, Oh, okay, cool. Well, the fact that I just get it means I get to do all this dope shit in service of the world. Well, you wouldn't question yourself at all. It's just those yeah. momentary lapses that I have as well, where I go, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be okay right now. Or I don't know, maybe this was supposed to fuck with me more than it did. And what I've learned, and this is like a takeaway that anyone I think can bring into their own life, but the more that you trust your intuition, you're creating, like literally creating a relationship with that part of yourself that is in you. And as you create that relationship, it gives you clearer and clearer and more actionable messages. So it's like the moment you start to trust yourself, like people are like, well, if I trust my intuition, what if something goes wrong? Great, that's fucking feedback faster you trust it the quicker you get the feedback the more quickly you can come back and recycle and go okay ooh, that wasn't quite my intuition actually that was some other shit that was my ego good to know all right start the cycle again yeah like it, it just happened for me recently um i've been in a very challenging relationship and uh something happened a couple months ago where it felt like my intuition, but in hindsight, it was my ego. And it was like, I'm going to cut this person completely out of my life romantically because it's not, it's not good. And I did it. And the way that I did it was very clean. It was very honest. It was where I could see. But then that night I had a dream and the dream very clearly showed me, you are saying no to the last lesson that is involved in whatever this dance is. And the image of me saying no was scooping old melted ice cream with my hand out of a huge carton and stuffing it in my face. And when I woke up, the really clear download was what you did yesterday is actually not the way. You thought it was the way because you didn't want to feel pain. But this whisper inside of you is asking you to open back up to love without the safety that your ego wants and to continue dancing. And like, I am at the point in my life when I get a clear message from that whisper within, regardless of how much my ego does not want to listen to it, I fucking do it. It's such a beautiful message. And 
to honor you for opening up to that too, because I think one of the things that people struggle with the most is like when you have that moment where you tune in and you're like, oh, that was the wrong thing I did. It's pretty difficult to then go back tail between my legs and go, gotta gotta shoot you straight. I know when I cut you off yesterday that I seemed very sure of myself. I was fucking wrong as shit. That was not the way. Let's try this a different way. And I find for myself, and this is maybe actionable for everyone, but for myself that when you when you catch yourself in those moments, the way that you show up in those moments where you've been wrong and then you've realized it and then you turn around and are able to admit that, those are the those moments are the alchemy that perhaps gives more fuel to you than just about anything else. I completely agree. And the thing that I would offer is I truly operate in my life like there is a God inside of me that is watching everything that I do, every thought that I have, every choice that I make, every lie that I tell, it sees everything. And I seek to live my life in a way where I can look that thing in the eye and hold the gaze, you know, and say, I'm listening, I'm showing up. I know that you're proud of me. And so like when I, when I know that I've heard the message, I know that that God inside of me knows that I've heard the message. And I'm just at a point now where the truth is that coming back afterwards is not hard. It actually turns me on in a way. And mm -hmm. I don't mean that sexually, like it turns on my spirit to know my ego is doing something it doesn't want to do because it heard the call. I'm so fucking proud of you. Good job. And like, even if I'm crying because of what I, because of whatever it is that I did that was in truth hurt me. I, as my ego cries, I feel my soul behind me, like clapping and saying like, yay. Absolutely. You know? It's like you get a chance. This is how I, conceptualize it in a very hero's journey way it's you get a chance to signal to your path and your purpose that you're fucking in yeah. every time i get that chance it's like uh-huh uh-huh okay i get to show myself my higher self god whatever you want to fucking structure it as that i'm in and those moments are where you really like it's you know, just an easy example. It's relatable. Like the mo the morning that you wake up and you feel kind of sick and you don't really want to go to the gym. If you go to gym, the gym on that day, going to the gym becomes so much easier all the other days when you fucking already kind of want to. When I have that moment to like grab that sword and be like, okay, I'm fucking doing this. <laughs> Man, shit goes real smooth. Usually after those truth telling moments, you'll get like a nod from the universe. It's like, hey, nice fucking work on that. Here's a throw you a bone. You're on the way. Good work. Absolutely. And like one of the things to feel into is that if you don't know what that feels like yet, it always begins with faith. Mm -hmm. And if you just run the faith experiment for a month where whenever I hear that little whisper to do something and my ego is afraid to do it just for one month, fuck one week, just do the just do the faith experiment of doing it. And I remember the day 
that I began to say yes to the whisper when it was scary. So I would say yes if the whisper came and it wasn't too scary. But um, I think I was 24 and I ended up doing like 180 milligrams of an edible. I didn't understand how much I was eating and I didn't understand how it converted and it ended up being the most terrifying, hardest psychedelic experience of my life. But I got through it. And the very next day, I went on my first Tinder date, which I had been afraid to go on because I was afraid to be rejected after my partnership that I'd been in for like four years. Uh, Ended up being one of the coolest motherfucking like short-term relationships I've ever been a part of. Great sex like every day. It was while I was visiting my family for Christmas. So I was away for a couple of weeks and it was just this beautiful, really conscious relationship. Um, After that first date, the next day I applied to on it and I got the job. And then like three days later, I fucking fly back to my house and then I moved to Austin the next day. And then right before going into my interview with Aubrey, it, it genuinely felt like the spirit of ayahuasca. And I don't even know that I didn't even know what that meant, but it felt like it talked to me and it said, as soon as you get the call, say yes. And I got the job. And then like six months after being there, Aubrey called me into his office, asked me if I wanted to go to the jungle. I ended up going to the jungle, changed my life. But those first two days, like it changed the way that I functioned in relationships and it got me my dream job. So impactful, I think, for people to hear that and that that's so accessible for all of us. So let's pivot a little bit here and talk about just what do you think as you see people and as you work with people and you've worked with quite a few people at this point, what do you think the biggest barriers are for most people that stand in the way of listening to that whisper? And what can they do to move through them if they're feeling blocked, if they're feeling like they can't access that inner true self that's going, hey, over here, what can they do to move through that? my intuition. And I think that it's not what most people would answer if you ask them, but I really think that the core of it is they don't have a connection to spirit. Hmm. They don't, they don't have a cosmology where they truly believe that there is a God inside of them that is on their team that genuinely wants to help them become who they are by them manifesting their dharma. Their conception of the world is so like one dimensional where there is no spirit anywhere. We live in a material universe. There are houses, there's empty air above the houses. The things that matter are my parents' opinions of me, my friends' opinions of me, my boss's opinion of me. Um, being chosen by a good enough partner that I can wrangle to, you know, go have the family with. Mm -hmm. But that if you can find the stories and the experiences to connect to the only opinion that matters, that should come before everything else is your relationship to the divine. And can you feel Can you feel that the divine is in you and watching you and is trying to help you? And if you can create that connection, 
and that that is the thing at the top of your hierarchy of value that you bow to the fear that people talk about the imposter syndrome that people talk about the judgments of mom and dad or partner or boss that they talk about like all those things just get so much more quiet when the number one instrument in the symphony of the things that are happening inside of you is is my god proud of me does my god see me do i see my god do i listen to my god do i honor my god do i bow to my god and i say my god because each of us have a unique expression of whatever mm. that thing is that's unfolding through us now what what most people would say is it's fear of failure or it's fear of judgment or it's lack of self-love or any of that. But I think all of that shit is alchemized when you make the connection to that whisper inside of you and you understand that it is a finger of the divine animating you and that its sole function in you is to bring you to your potential. Mm -hmm. And that in order for you to do that, you are going to have to die to aspects of you over and over and over again, but that you are guided. You are never alone. You have never been alone. You will never be alone. And the thing that will always be with you, the thing that will be with you in your death moment will not be your children or your partner or your car or your house, but that thing will be there with you. Hmm and trying to live a life like the way to ultimately frame it is in your death moment who you could be who you could have been will reveal itself to you as it that has been the whisper the entire time mm -hmm. that has been the god inside of you and can you look that thing in the eye and genuinely say i am you i became you I brought you into the world. Mm -hmm. I died to who I was so you could live. Man, it's been a fucking ride. I did not shy away. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I'm sure you've heard the quote that a man is born many men and dies as only one. And that speaks to me. And I think like to add a access point here, because I find that even within myself, but certainly in people that I work with in coaching, oftentimes when they're deep in the muck, everything you just said is like, they're like, what do you mean the fucking divine? Like I just lost my car, my mom and my dad. Here is the filter that I provide for them in those moments. And I say, if you thought of the possibility that the universe or God or the divine or your highest self was conspiring in your favor. If you thought of that as the way the world operates and that conspires in your favor, when you show up and you listen to the whisper, how would that change the filter that you apply to everything that happens in your life? And how would that affect your actions? because you don't need to start from a place of deep belief. You can, you can access this from like a logical tactical side of things and go, this is a good belief set to run, to improve your life. And like you said earlier, try it out for a month, 
Try it on for size. See what happens. If the other thing isn't fucking working, try this. And if you do try it, all of a sudden, like what I found and what you found is it's almost as if my highest self is like an excited fucking child that someone is paying attention to it finally and immediately comes in and goes, you're here. Oh my God, I've been waiting for you. I've been over here just waiting. And like, it's wild how quickly shit can unfold. When you truly commit to listen, you truly commit to show up in that spirit of gratitude. You commit to showing up from that place of deep service. Like you are serving the God inside of you. You're not taking from the God inside of you. You're serving it. You're showing up and going, I love you. What can I do for you? And when you show up in that spirit, the fucking whole universe lines up and drops breadcrumbs right in front of you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can feel, so I appreciate you being a bridge because I can feel that I've been in this feeling for so long that I'm almost disconnected from what it feels like to not be in this feeling. Um, and this feeling is like, I genuinely feel that there is a God inside of me and I can hear it clearly and it is conspiring for me to bring me into my Dharma and that the more I listen to it, the more grace I have, the more miracles that happen, the more like the perfect people come into my life at the perfect time. And it's hard for me to remember how I felt before I started doing that. And the thing that I would offer that was my bridge was what's called pragmatic philosophy. And pragmatic philosophy is a type of metaphysics where it basically makes the assertion, I cannot know anything for sure. And like, that was an existential crisis that I came to as a young man. Like I, no one can know capital K objective truth. And so what pragmatic philosophy says is any idea that you have is essentially a tool and you will learn the usefulness of the tool by embodying the idea in behavior and then watching what results you get from your life in response to embodying it as a behavior. They're tools and choose to believe the tools that help you continue to create the life that you want. And I have found this tool which is essentially learn what the daemon is, learn how to hear what the daemon speaks, learn how to listen to the daemon, and then die again and again and again. It's been so effective that I haven't even thought to put it down for like five years now. And one of the things that I would offer to people is the daemon is alive in you right now. That whisperer is alive in you right now. The people that you admire, you don't get to choose who or what you admire. Like feel into that for a moment. You don't have free will over what you admire. Something inside of you does it for you. That's the daemon. And the things and the people that you admire from movies, from books, from video games, and in quote unquote real life, they are embodying modes of behavior. They are embodying types of behavior that that thing in you is like, oh, if we try that, I think that might fit. Mm. And so listen to who you admire, pay attention to what you admire, try to be like those people and see if it fits. And by fit, I mean, if you embody that behavior, do you get more of the life that you want? Also, 
when you really start to dive into dreams, you will recognize that there is a force inside of you that is so powerful mm -hmm. that it can effortlessly, without your conscious intention or awareness or intervention, create worlds that are indistinguishable from reality and that it does it every night. And that if you learn how to interpret what it's saying, there is a part of you that is teaching you things you don't know that are, that is guiding you. And when you really start to feel into the fact of dreams, I think that was probably my gateway to divinity is it's like, how can you reckon with the fact that there is something inside of you that can literally create worlds. The creations are for you to guide you and can teach you things you don't know. And that it happens every night. Mm -hmm. That's the Damon too. Like there is this force inside of us that is screaming at us if we had the ears to listen. And it wants you to become what you're meant to be. Mm. I, love, I love just even, so maybe you've seen this study, but the, the parallels between psychedelics and dreams. There's a study recently that they did. Hold uh, on one second, I got a knock. Yeah, Come in. No worries. So there's a study recently where they, they, and I don't know who agreed to this because I can't imagine agreeing to this, but they, they stuck brain scans on people while they were doing ayahuasca. And oh. yeah. And the, the results of the brain scans were that they were in the same brainwave state as you are when you're dreaming. Yes. <laughs> and yes. we're like, yeah, we know, but to just have that scientific piece to it. So it's like, People underestimate what their dreams are. Like people fly to Peru, risk bugs, creepy shamans, all sorts of shit to go take ayahuasca so they can experience what is called the waking dream. And at all times, every night when you go to sleep, and if you don't remember your dreams, I invite you to just try to remember them for a couple weeks and watch how quickly the floodgates open. Your dreams are accessible and they are a they are a guide walking with a torch in front of you. And if you are willing to follow that, I mean, this was Carl Jung's like <laughs> point of individuation. Like if you're willing to follow these whispers, you'll become who you're meant to be. And this is something like, it doesn't matter if you can't take psychedelics because you're morally opposed because this doesn't, you know, doesn't work with your brain chemistry, whatever. Dreams are accessible to you. So maybe if you can riff for a second on just <laughs> as someone begins to work with their dreams, what should they do and what should they maybe avoid for maximum result? Yeah. So um, you go through, if you sleep eight hours a night, you go through four sleep cycles. And at the end of each sleep cycle for the last 20 to 30 minutes, you dream. You dream every night. If you sleep more than two hours, you dream. Whether or not you remember them is a different thing. Um, if you begin by setting the intention before going to bed where you say, I intend to remember my dreams or to ask or just in whatever way feels authentic to you, make a claim to the thing beyond that you want to remember your dreams. Another really good like technical hack is put your voice memo app on your home screen 
for whatever reason, when you sit up in bed, the moment your, your spine gets erect, and if you stand up, a tremendous amount of whatever dream is lingering, like vanishes. So roll over, grab your phone, hit the record button, and just start talking. And the way dreams actually experientially unfold is they're like sets of images. It's not an actual story. We create the story the moment we become conscious. And that's okay. That's actually a part of what the dream content is trying to reveal to you. So when you roll over, just try to feel into any image that's lingering and then just start to articulate the image. And then the dream tends to blossom out of that articulation. And if you do that for just a couple of days, you will be astonished by how, by the amount of dreams that start to come back. Another thing is for the last hour of the day, there are technical things that you can do to improve your sleep. But if you also do them, it improves the vividness of your dreams. And so one thing is don't look at screens for the last hour of the night. Like the thing in you that dreams is connected to the thing in you right now that can imagine a flying golden bird soaring through rings of fire. Like that's never actually existed. Or if, if we make the bird have two heads, like that's never actually existed. You've never actually seen that, but you just created that through your imagination. That's magic. And when you look at screens, the screens actually force your imagination to see whatever it is that it's showing you. Mm -hmm. And my intuition is that constricts like the muscle, quote unquote, that wants to dream. And so for the last hour of the night, turn off screens and read fiction. The act of reading fiction forces you to imagine. It, it actually like opens up and expands the thing in you that will dream. And so re reading fiction while going to sleep helps. Hmm. Um, and another really interesting thing is in Native American traditions that Carl Jung talks about in the book, um, Man and His Symbols, is that the, they had a set of rituals that they would do to call in dreams. And so some of their rules were don't lie. Help people. Whenever you get a dream, create art from it so draw or paint or sing a song for it or sing a prayer for it or write a poem and they believe that all of those types of actions would call forward more dreams in you a great fiction book that i would recommend is called the kin of atta are waiting for you it's a great fiction book all about the power of dreams if you read that for half an hour before going to bed where everything in the book is about dreams and you're imagining, mm -hmm. try not to dream. And then once you start remembering your dreams, um, the two books that I would recommend to people, the first one I just mentioned is Man and His Symbols. It'll give mm -hmm. you a great overview of like what's happening. And the other one is called Inner Work by Robert Johnson, which gives a very practical, technical, step-by-step -step guide on how to begin to interpret your dreams. What Jung finds is that there's essentially four layers of dreams. And when you first start to do the dream work, the first layer is what's called shadow work. And shadow work is essentially people in your dreams who are of the same gender as you, they tend to represent aspects of your ego that you're either in conflict with or that you're trying to absorb or integrate. And so if you're a man and you're having a dream where you're fighting a man, the qualities of the man in the dream that you're fighting are a symbol, a representation of a part of you that you are in conflict with right now. 
And so the first layer of this dance are shadow dreams. The next layer is what's called anima or animus dreams, which is Latin for soul. And this is where you begin to, if your ego is how your psyche interacts with the quote unquote outer world, your soul in Jungian sense is how your ego interacts with your inner world. And the way Jung articulated this is that that will be represented in your dreams by, by people of the opposite gender, that however you present yourself into the world, your quote unquote soul is how you interact with your inner world. And so it's the opposite. And so this will tend to be women um, if you're a man and obviously reverse if you're a woman. And those dreams tend to focus around either seduction or being seduced or someone guiding you or trying to trick you. Mm. And those are you trying to grapple with the aspects of the feminine if you're masculine or the masculine if you're feminine and then the third layer of dreams are what are called capital s self dreams this is your higher self this is the god inside of you and that tends to be represented as um royal couples or any type of couple like where it's a man and woman together in some way very young children or very old men or women also the mandala which seems to be a universal symbol. And if you just notice the light changed in my room, the moment I said mandala, that's interesting. Um, and then like precious gems. So any of those symbols is when that deeper force is trying to like directly speak to you. Also disembodied voices represent the self. If, if you hear a disembodied voice, it's almost a direct download always from the capital S self. And then there are what are called big dreams mm. or collective dreams where it's not about you at all that you're tapping into something that's for the collective, that's way bigger than you. And those dreams tend to feel completely mythical. You know, like I had a dream last night where I was walking home from like a party. I was on MDMA and I did that recently. So that was easy. Uh, and I ended up on the porch of like a house and I'm laying on the porch and the energy of the people around me is like, they're not grounded and they're too energetic. And I very calmly, instead of just asking them to relax, I almost cast a spell where I was like, what would it feel like if you did that, but you were dancing? And then I woke up and like, that's a small dream. Like that was me interacting with people that I knew inside of a house. Mm -hmm. But then I've had dreams where it's like, I'm watching a huge bear run on a moonlit landscape towards a castle. And the bear starts to run up the castle and gets to the uppermost room. And that bear is a female and there's a male bear in the room and they like collide together. And then there's a baby boy there mm -hmm. and the sun's coming through and it feels like I'm in medieval times. That's a big dream. That's not a, like me trying to sort out how I feel about my partner dream, you know? Yeah. It's, I just, I had, I'm having a dream brought to mind that maybe we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. Um, I think that just like dreams are such a rich, deep source of information for us. 100%, man. It's so accessible for everyone. And you'll have, again, to harp on the intuition, you'll have intuitions about what things mean in your dreams. I've had this experience where it's like, oh, that means that. And then I'll go look it up. I'm like, oh, that's exactly what it meant. And this kind of gets into the idea of the like archetypal unconscious, like these 
pieces of humanity that have been forged over hundreds of thousands of years that have really been influenced by the stories we've told that have been an attempt in the first place to represent these deep truths that sit within all of us truths of ways to be in the world that are positive like a quick side note just to offer is like whenever i do a dream interpretation if they don't light up instantly and knowing i'm probably wrong yeah and like the thing to feel into that's so that just makes this so magical is the thing in you that dreams is you and the thing in you that is teaching you through symbols and dreams is also you so everything that's being revealed to you in dreams some part of you already knows and so when it's articulated that part in you that dreamed it that showed you it that knew it instantly resonates and you feel it in your body and it's just it's this it's this like it's mind fuckery to really feel into like what you think you are is this itty bitty thing embedded in this beautiful organism and there's this god behind you that dreams for you and that it's like it's trying to help your dumb ass like move through all the little things that you're afraid of and that you're working on and that when you begin to like decode the first barrier of dreams like the thing in you that dreams knows and as soon as you start to meet it it fucking meets you and like you will begin to intuitively know what these dreams are telling you and then the beautiful thing is buckle the fuck up here we go (laughs) because because once you open that channel it's so hard to ignore the call when you learn to listen to your dreams because the thing in you that dreams knows when you've understood the message and then if you continue to ignore the message it's like okay bitch here we go here are some dreams here's some bad luck here's an illness because i know you know there's this great quote and i wish I, i i need to learn it by heart because it's so important i read it at the tahoe workshop that i gave it's by like some dude's last name almas or something but it's essentially like Every bad thing that has ever happened to you is not by chance. It is perfectly designed for you, by you, to bring you back to the path. Because if it didn't hurt, you wouldn't come home. And all this force wants to do is to bring you home. That it loves you so completely that its only option is to create these experiences in your life to bring you back to who you are and that all of this is for you by you to bring you to you yeah it's and again like the parallels between the psychedelic experience and the dream experience are stunning here and even earlier when you're talking about the native american tradition of like if you're in truth and you're listening to the messages and you're in kindness that is what causes the dreams to come forth and something i recommend to people all the time with ceremonies is like don't come back to me until you've worked on the thing from your last ceremony because in my experience when people get the air quotes bad trip which is really just a difficult message it's almost always because they saw some shit last time 
that told them, here's what you need to go do. And they got back to the normal life and they're like, you know, maybe that wasn't what it meant. Maybe I can just ignore that. And then they come back and it's like, hey, I was telling you nicely last time. This time's not going to be as nice. This time you're going to see it in visceral reality. And it is, as you said, it's like, buckle up. Once you open the door, it's coming. Yep. <laughs> you can't turn and, the light switch back off. And that is like the word of caution to people, mm-hmm. you know, to offer. Like if what we were talking about earlier about the grace that we feel is something that you don't identify with yet and you want it, the cost is mm-hmm. you do not get to hide from that whisper inside of you anymore. You don't get to run from it. And it will ask you to do essentially everything that you need to do that you are afraid to do to grow. And like, on some level, I don't feel like I have free will, you know? Um, I feel like I do, but whenever I hear the call to whatever the thing is, it's like, I have to say yes, you know, like my ego does not want to be in the relationship that I'm in right now, but the soul was clear, you know, and that the work is for the ego to like sit, like you don't get to run away from this, you know, this is not done. And if this was a situation I was in before I knew how to hear the whisper, I would be out of this motherfucking thing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. there's lots of crying that comes. Well, it's the old occult idea of the trial of the abyss and what I actually think that means for archetypal reality or how we actually interact with reality is once you've made, there's this idea of like the great work, magnum opus, we've talked about this some, and that's the alchemy of your soul into the highest version of itself. And there's this idea that somewhere along that path, there's this abyss. And in this great abyss, you have to be willing to sacrifice everything. Everything will be taken from you for you to become what you're meant to be. And I believe that represents an archetypal truth, which is the truth that once you commit to this path, once you show up to your soul and say, I'm ready, you need to be willing to give up everything. Now, it doesn't mean you'll be asked to give up everything, but you need to be willing because there are going to be moments where you're like, really? I have to stop talking to my dad. He's family. I love him. I have to stop talking to him. And if you're not committed, it's going to be some pain. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that comes up for me is there's this great myth about, um, a queen's husband or king dies and she wants to go bring him back from the underworld and she has to pass through seven gates in order to do so. And at the first gate, the guard says, you know, you have to give me your ring. So she gives her ring. Next gate, you have to give me your robe, robe, and then her clothing and then eventually her crown. And then she gets to the last gate and the guard says, in order to step in, you have to give me your body. You have to give up your body. All of this is for death. Like the the spiritual path, the lessons that we're learning, it seems to be that the core thing is we are learning how to die. And that when you get to your death moment, there's a belief in many 
many traditions that that's the beginning of the real game and that the way that you die impacts what happens after that transition moment. And there's this idea, and it's been a long time since I've, that I've studied this, so this is kind of my intuition, but that the idea is that if you can't give up all of your attachments at your death moment, you will come back, you'll be reincarnated to work on those specific attachments to see if you can give them up when you get to this next stage. And if you're able to give up every attachment, you, you enter into whatever the next thing is. And we have no idea what that thing is, but like the thing about the psychedelic experience and the thing about living life in the form of the hero's journey, which is essentially how many times can you die to who you are to become a little mm -hmm. bit more of who you could be. Both of these things, they're teaching you how to die. And from a very practical standpoint, the way you die leaves such a powerful imprint on everyone who knows you that one of the greatest gifts that you can give to the people that you love is to die with grace. Mm. And that those who don't die with grace, who die with fear and anger and attachment, like it's not their fault, they did their best, but the energetic weight that it leaves on the people who love them is heavy. And on one level, what we are doing is we are learning how to die because we're going to have to give this all back to eternity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the occult parallel to this, because I just like love talking about, there's this idea that what ghosts are is people that died in a poor way. And therefore there are, there's multiple strata of the afterlife. And, you know, you can believe this or not. It's an interesting investigation point is how I like to frame it. Pragmatic philosophy. It's just exactly. a tool. Exactly. So ghosts are like low vibration. They're still basically on the physical plane because they didn't, they died in such a way. And this is why ghosts are commonly like, oh, it's someone who's murdered or it was a murderer who died who are like stuck physical plane. And then as you progress up the vibrational plane, you get closer and closer and closer and closer to what is the return to God experience, the full reunion, the full dissolution, but also being everything at once. And what I like about that paradigm is just this idea that as you go through your life, you are trying to raise and raise and raise your vibration through doing this self-work, through achieving the magnum opus as best you can so that you can raise your vibration point so that when you do die as you talked about the ripples can be like the ripples of an atomic fucking bomb that just spread and cover everyone like a ramdas who dies and everyone feels it every single person feels it and goes oh that's a way we can go and in that same effect, the idea is that the slingshot of who you are has been pulled so far back that in that moment of your death, it's released, you're launched way up. And who knows if you go all the way, maybe that's the next journey is you have to continue doing it in the next plane and working to go further up. But it's the interesting idea. And one of the ideas I've kind of committed parts of my life in pursuit of is like, that's the idea of that spiritual alchemy. That's the idea of you becoming the ultimate version of yourself. So that when you do get to that penultimate moment, you launch as far as you possibly could forward into whatever the next thing is. 
And what's interesting for me, man, is I feel like my soul contract is a bodhisattva. Mm. And so I'm actually not trying to do that. Mm. That it's like, I will continue to come back mm. until every being that wants to has reached whatever the thing is. Mm. And then I will go like a part of me feels like when I feel into that ayahuasca experience, a part of me feels like I already know how to do that. If, if that is the game that I was trying to play and I felt insecure even saying that just now, mm. but when I feel into that moment, it might be the case and but it feels like i'm choosing like i'm coming back there's more and you know i don't know any metaphysical idea i just don't know but my intuition is like i'm not trying to be in such a way where at that moment i can get as high as i can go i truly feel like um i'm here to help as many suffer less than they need to while they're here until I'm fucking called home. So interesting. I just had a vision of I'm flying off my slingshot and then there's a huge God sized trampoline sitting up in the astral that just bounces me back down to earth and says, go again, idiot. <laughs> You'll get it next time. <laughs> it's part of the beauty about talking about this stuff is just the, the reflection and the refraction of all the different ways in which we really don't know. But again, to return to that pragmatic philosophy of like, I believe some of the best ways to live my life, if only for life satisfaction, are these ideas and these concepts. And I think you experience this too. It's like, it almost doesn't matter what happens after I do die, because in the process of getting to what I believe is the optimal launch point or the optimal bodhisattva point, I am creating the life that I would have wanted anyway. 100%. Like, yeah. my life is better in every sense of the word that I can articulate than I could even fantasize about four mm -hmm. years ago. And so the tools that I'm using, like they are proving themselves useful. I'm going to fucking keep using them until I get different feedback. At this moment, last weekend, I was looking around at all beautiful motherfuckers at our Halloween party, and I'm just like, if two years ago, when I started Fit for Service, I had visualized this, I would have kind of smacked myself, like, wake up, Alex. Get it together. Right. Yeah. Couldn't be. And there it was. It's because I listened. I listened to what was my path and what it was guiding me towards dude and to feel into 50 years from now like i'm fucking here wow brother i'm so excited and a little scared if i'm being honest but very excited as well yeah beautiful well maybe as a closing topic i would love to hear you just riff because i think of all the things we talked about one of the best access points for people to begin to shift their personal life is daily morning rituals. Yeah. I think that's an inroad that almost everyone can take because one of the things I've noticed in quite a few clients I've worked with is most people have a day where they wake up and from the moment they wake up, they're stumbling downhill 
towards the moment where they can hopefully be done with their day and sit and watch TV for an hour before they go to sleep. So starting the day, how would you do it for someone who has every, everything's fucked up. They're working the worst job. They're depressed and they have 10 to 30 minutes at the beginning of their day. What would you tell them? The first thing that I would tell them is um, I'm not even going to tell you what to do, but for the next week, just write down what you're doing every half an hour and then we'll look at it. Hmm. And then when I come back and they've told me that they have no time, the truth is in the course of a week, they've spent probably six to eight hours either watching TV, being on their phone, doing things that they don't need to be doing to take care of the fires that are happening in their life. And Hmm. then the first thing is like, you have more time than you believe you do. Like no matter who you are, you have a little bit more time than you believe you do. What we're going to do is we're going to set the intention for the next two months to start at 10 minutes and to build up to 90 minutes every morning. First thing in the morning, it's for you. Like if anyone listening to this is being honest, when you wake up, how long do you spend on your phone before you get out of bed? Mm-hmm. Like that could be your morning ritual. That could be like, if, if you just got into your morning thing, that would be a fucking thing. Now, where this gets tricky when you actually start working with people is most people who, in order to even get them a morning routine, you have to actually fix the last four hours of their night before. Mm-hmm. And so it can start to get really tricky. But let's assume that you aren't destroying your ability to sleep through how you eat or how you spend the last couple of hours of the night and we'll just imagine that you're actually able to function in the morning. Um, you know what? No, fuck it. Let's, let's pretend that you're like an average person. Yeah. It begins with owning the last 30 minutes of your night. Hmm. You can own the last 30 minutes of your night. So the first thing is turn off your phone, put your phone on airplane mode, whatever you need to do to have no screens. Mm-hmm. If you have a TV in your bedroom, take it out of your fucking bedroom tonight (laughs) tonight and for the last 30 minutes begin to create a ritual where you either take a shower or you masturbate or you do whatever you need to do to like calm down a little bit because trying to get you to meditate at the beginning is probably not going to be helpful but you already have coping behaviors that you probably already use brush your teeth to start to trigger to your mind that you're getting ready for bed while you brush your teeth just say some beautiful things Like maybe you can't even bring yourself to say a positive thing about yourself, but you could sing a song that you love. Just hum a song while you brush your teeth and then get into bed and read something you love or listen to a podcast. And then after about 10 or 20 minutes, like as soon as you can feel that your attention is waving, turn it off and go to sleep. When you wake up, I'll share what I do to give a sense and then what I would offer. But when I wake up, if my life is not hard in this moment, because if it's hard, I instantly click into like a really structured routine. But if it's chill, I will check my phone. But I've made the agreement with myself that I use my phone to wake me up. And I will look at beautiful asses or whatever I need to do to kind of get the blood going. But I watch the clock. And after like 10 minutes, I'm up and instead of a TV, I have an altar 
and I go and I kneel at my altar and I look the thing in the eye that feels like it represents my God and whatever wants to come through me that day, I might not say anything, but it's just an eye contact. Like I see you, you see me, maybe it's a prayer, maybe it's a claiming, maybe it's a mantra or a fucking affirmation, but I tend not to do those. <clears throat> and then I go downstairs and I have a desk and I've, I've spent eight years creating all these routines where the moment I sit down at that desk, I light a candle, I light some Palo Santo, I put on noise canceling headphones, I have the same song on repeat, and then I do my motherfucking Dharma for two to three hours. Now, that's not what I would obviously recommend to people. But for people just starting, when you wake up, you know, brush your teeth and say one intention that you have or one prayer, and then go somewhere and journal and just set a timer for 10 minutes and do what's called expressive writing. And expressive writing is essentially you write stream of consciousness. You don't edit. You don't worry about grammar or anything else. You will never reread this and no one else will ever read this. If you have to burn the fucking paper when you're done. But the goal is you are going to begin to tell yourself the truth. And if you just do that for a month, it takes 10 minutes. But the goal is you truly write stream of consciousness. So that means the pen never leaves the paper because you're mm -hmm. always thinking something, dude. And it might be like, I don't know what to say. I feel mm -hmm. so stupid doing this. I feel like my back aches and just keep going 10 minutes. And then go do the rest of your day. But no, like, take a moment. I just removed one speck of dust off of the inner God inside of me today. Mm -hmm. And I'll remove one speck of dust tomorrow. Yeah. And you slowly just start to do that. You are now creating a little window for your daemon to start to come into your life. And good luck writing for two weeks and not getting a clear mm -hmm. download on either a on a relationship to change, an eating habit to change or to improve, like things will spontaneously start to emerge in you about what to contend with to begin to improve your life. And then what I, I love this feeling of like slow growth. And so like when I do the ice bath, I'll always add one second onto whatever I'm doing mm -hmm. or two seconds. And it gets to the point where it's like five minutes and then I'm like, fuck, like I'm, I'm in here for five minutes set a timer where you add 10 seconds each day until you get to the point where you're writing three full pages. And if you just do that consistently, that inner voice in you will tell you what the next thing is or what the next thing is. And that's what I would offer to people who are starting out at the very beginning. Beautiful. Yeah. It's, I think one of the biggest game changers for me recent, well, last year and a half, I would say, I set two alarms in the morning and one is for 6 a.m. depending on when I went to bed the night before and one's for 6.05. And I have until the second alarm to be the fuck out of bed. Because as you're talking about earlier, like I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe I set an alarm for six and then I get out of bed at seven. <laughs> huh. That I, don't have, good. Yeah, I don't have any time. Interesting. Um, so what would you say we'll give this one last piece, then perhaps we'll start to wrap. Everything you just said is so impactful. What happens when you miss a day? What's the loop? 
that happens when you fall off the train because you went out drinking on Friday and you don't go and do the process on Saturday and then you're beating yourself up. What's weird is for me, again, this might be like I'm disconnected from the common man, (laughs) but even if I smash myself with drugs or whatever, the next day, it doesn't matter how late it is. I'm getting to my desk. Mm. I'm putting my headphones on. I'm lighting the candle. And even if it's 10 minutes, Mm. I'm doing it for fucking 10 minutes. And if I'm traveling, like the very core bottom thing is I'm going to journal. Even if it's for five minutes, like I'm just doing it every day because on the days that I don't do it, I don't feel good. Mm. And the truth is it's not because I didn't do it. It's because I know I could have, which I think is a fundamental different thing. Like if you view whatever the core habit is, and for me, it's journaling as I have met my God today and looked her in the eye, as long as I made eye contact today, like I'm in alignment. And so even if it's one minute, right? One sentence, you can do it. I like that. Because even in the accepting of what is and being like, yo, I'm not in an optimal place today. You can always go, I'm just going to do those five push-ups. That's it. That's all I have to do. If I do those five push-ups, I can feel good that I did something. And perhaps the piece I would provide people with is, you know, for me, I do have those moments where I slip up and I'll miss a day. And when I miss a day, the important thing, and especially when I was starting out, the thing that I have empathy for is sometimes when you're first starting out, reducing the lag time between falling off the horse and getting back on is actually the progress that you're looking for. If it used to be that you would go on a diet and then when you had pizza one night in a drunken haze, you would fall off your diet for a month, but this time you only fell off for two weeks. That's progress. Right. Remembering that piece of it too, as you're first starting out, it's like, Hey, if you only fall off for one day and you get right back to it, I'm calling that a win. <laughs> Cause if you do that consistently over the course of your life, you're going to end up having missed like three days ever. And it's going to be great. <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the, I can feel that I'm, that I'm not good at giving advice here because I feel like so many of the fundamental things are now like ingrained in my being. But the other idea is like when I first started this habit change stuff, I had this big whiteboard where I would draw a fat X every day when I did the one habit that I was working on. And the thing is don't have two empty days in a row. That's it. You know? And like, once you get like the thing that is magical about habits is that once they click, you don't have to think about them. And like, this is one of the best feelings for people who start working out. Like when you first begin to work out, you have to push yourself to get there. But after a couple of months, something clicks and it's no longer a push. It's a pull. You want to be there. You can get there on autopilot. And like my journaling is like that. My working and writing, like I am pulled to write every day. And so it's hard to remember what it's like on the other side there. I'm going to go turn on a light because I look like a fucking vampire. You're slowly morphing into demon mode. <laughs> it's dark early. Sure does. 
So last question, because I think we're at a pretty beautiful spot to wrap. What is the thing right now that your soul is calling you to that you feel afraid of, or I will say it doesn't need to be afraid of, but that perhaps in the past you would have felt afraid of, or there'd be some level of trepidation. And what is your soul calling you towards with that next step? The big download in Sedona and for the last couple of weeks is that I'm being called to learn how to use sound in psychedelic space, Mm -hmm. specifically with my voice and with a drum and with a rattle and shit like that. And then I'm also being called, and I don't understand why, I've never been into it, I've never heard the call to it before, but um, Egyptian mythology and Egyptian magic. Literally, yesterday, I met someone who is a sound alchemist, which means that he goes and takes people on retreats to like exotic places and then does three to five hour long sound ritual or ceremonies in these magnetic charged places. Mm. So that's interesting. I was like, I would like to learn from you. And then we get deeper into the conversation and about half an hour later, I realize he runs a yearly pilgrimage to Egypt to do the sound alchemy and he invited me. Okay. So next year, I'm going by the time we go, which will be sometime in April, I will have learned at least a little bit of what my personal sound medicine is. And I'm going to fucking go to Egypt and I'm going to be in the temples. Like he's got this cool relationship with some of the temple guards where he, he's able to get into places that you're not allowed to be. And that call is so clear and the me a year ago would be i'm not fucking going to egypt i'm not spending thousands of dollars to go somewhere where i don't know if i'll be safe to fucking walk through dungeons and temples to do magic inside of fucking eight thousand year old structures but the moment i heard the call yesterday i was like i'm going unnegotiable beautiful and i'm excited for you that shit lights me up too so i even just in ceremony the other day i was telling kingsbury this that i was ringing a singing bowl and into the singing bowl i was saying words of affirmation just i love you you're all so seen you're held you're deeply safe and in that psychedelic space i was seeing the words vibrate out from the singing bowl and i was like Huh, I wonder if this is just in my head. And then immediate reaction from everyone in the room as I was doing it. Okay. There's something here in the space of sound, in the space of that vibration that is not fully yet understood. Not even close. And I'm really excited to see how this unfolds for you because it's. Because I'll be sharing it. Yeah, exactly. All right, brother. So. Where can people find you? Podcast, Instagram, et cetera. Where are the best places to access your content and your beautiful mind? Yeah. My podcast is The Myths That Make Us. Uh, my Instagram and my website are both my full name, Eric Gotzi. And I do a weekly newsletter um, that you can sign up for on my website. And then I have a course over journaling called Make Your Myth that you can also find at the website. 
Beautiful. That will all be in the show notes for everyone. Eric, thank you so much for being on, brother. I appreciate you. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, brother. Likewise. Alright, so that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, Godzi doesn't ever fail to deliver the powerful messages and the deep insights, so I hope you got as much out of this one as I did. If you did enjoy it, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or writing a review, and of course, sharing it with a friend is the absolute best way to get the podcast out to more people in a relatively short order of time. All of the links to Godzi's different projects in places you can find him are in the show description and as always you can find me on instagram at alexander diesel feel free to shoot me a dm and say hello and you can find me on my website www.throughtheveil.co where you can book any of my coaching check out articles i've written and just generally get all sorts of goodness so much love to you all i hope you have a wonderful week and i'll talk to you next tuesday